All right, let's talk about science, starting with the fact that it was about 50 years ago that the first quasar was discovered. A quasar, which is short for quasi-stellar object, is something that looks like a star, a little pinpoint of light out in space, but when measurements are done to find out how far away it is, it turns out that it's way far away. In fact, billions of light years away meaning that it's not a star at all. It's something else. What that something else could be puzzled astronomers for quite some time. Since to be that far away and to be as bright as it is, they had to figure that something really odd is going on here, something beyond the power of hydrogen fusion that powers the sun, or perhaps beyond that of the explosions that we call supernova, which to my satisfaction, uh, after watching a lot of Science shows on TV and reading about it, I think that's still not completely understood what the hell's going on. Something else that's very odd about quasars, which was discovered early on, is that they change in luminosity. They can make some very rapid changes. And since any change at all is limited by the speed of light, in other words, if there's a change in brightness that takes place over a day, then whatever object that's changing has to be basically one light day in size. And it turns out one light day is a little bit bigger than the limits of our solar system. And it turns out so are some quasars. And that implies, notes Wikipedia, an astonishingly high energy density. Now it turns out uh, that one of the first quasars ever discovered, titled 3C273 in the constellation of Virgo, is actually pretty bright. It's got an apparent magnitude of 12.8, which, which is something you can pick up through a medium-sized amateur telescope. But in spite of its relative brightness, it turns out it's 2 billion, with a B, light years away. Because when you start talking about astronomical distances, they get, they get pretty astronomical. For example, our nearby, our near neighbor, the Andromeda Galaxy, is over 2 million light years away, and that's considered local. Nevertheless, multiply that times 1,000, and you got... The object 3C273. When you do the math on this, it turns out it has an absolute magnitude of negative 26. An absolute magnitude is a term astronomers use when referring to how bright something would be if it were 10 parsecs away, which is about 30 light years. 30 light years makes something uh, a star that's in the neighborhood. Vega, a star you may be aware of, is, is about right. Pollux, uh, one of the two uh, lead stars making up Gemini uh, is almost exactly that far away. And I do have a confession to make, dear listener, that for years I couldn't have told you which one was Castor and which one was Pollux. Yes, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it's true. But thankfully, thankfully, someone supplied the mnemonic that Pollux is closer to Procyon while Castor is closer to Capella. Once you know that, of course, you're all right. But anyway, in terms of absolute magnitude, it turns out that our sun also has an absolute magnitude of about negative 26, which means if you took quasar 3C273 and put it 10 parsecs away, which we don't recommend, by the way, it would be as bright as the sun, which necessarily means that this quasar is over 4 trillion times brighter than our sun. Quasars are pretty interesting objects. We recommend you uh, noodle around on the web to find out more about them. But uh, 
thing this correspondent was especially intrigued by was something going on right here in our own galaxy. Now, luckily, we don't have a quasar in our own galaxy, thank God, because it would be spewing out more energy than the whole rest of the galaxy combined. But we do have the potential, apparently, in the heart of our very own Milky Way to have sort of a mini quasar, and it, and it might actually develop in the not-too-distant future. We refer you to a piece in New Scientist, April 27th issue by Nigel Henbest, titled The Giant Awakes. It's got a pretty intriguing uh, subheadline too, which asks, what happens when a cosmic monster gets its first meal in a century? All is about to be revealed in the heart of the Milky Way. So here's the deal. Quasars are old. We're looking at them as they existed billions of years ago. So they represent something that was taking place earlier in the evolution of our universe. Scientists are now pretty sure that what they amount to are massive, super giant, you know, galaxy mass-sized black holes in the center of earlier galaxies. In the process of them gobbling up stuff, they heat it up and spew out jets that apparently, uh, well, make them so bright. Reportedly, the brightest known quasars devour a thousand solar masses every year. The largest is estimated to consume matter equivalent to 600 Earths per minute. To which I would say, Mr. Chekhov, get us the hell out of here. But at any rate, it's now thought that just about every galaxy out there has a black hole in its center. The Andromeda galaxy apparently has a really big one. Our own Milky Way has one that's uh, considerably tamer. It is known as Sagittarius A. And you really can't see it because it's obscured by dust clouds. But if you're clever, as many astronomers are, and you use infrared to peer through the, uh, the veil of um, intervening dust, you can see stars near our galactic black hole. And we, and we can estimate its size pretty well, at least its mass, by how fast these stars have to spin to not get sucked in. Oh, and if you want to get an assessment of how big ours is, apparently it's about 4 million suns in mass. And the astronomers studying it have noticed that there appears to be a gas cloud headed for destruction. And in a similar fashion to quasars, when stuff gets sucked in, apparently gets heated up and causes quite a big nasty mess. Noted the piece in New Scientist, later this year, we are due to get our first glimpse of how a black hole springs into life when a gas cloud called G2 nears its edge. It will give us an unprecedented insight into what makes a galaxy's dark heart tick. Now, our own Sagittarius A is really no slouch. It actually shines 100 times brighter than our sun, although it doesn't impress astronomers because a large star such as Betelgeuse can outshine, can outshine our own sun 100,000 times over, which is something to think about next time you're looking up at Orion. Another thing that's really curious about all this is that people can pick up light echoes. In other words, you can... In essence, point your telescope at an area that would have been struck by light, say, 100,000 years ago. There's some interesting science mixed up in all of this, uh, and astronomers looking for similar light echoes around Sagittarius A have found them. It appears that uh, there's some light being reflected off something that happened near our galaxy's black hole about a century ago. Apparently got as bright as a million suns. Perhaps an unlucky planet got sucked into the black hole and got pretty well squashed and blown up. Now, they're, they're pretty sure that this uh, gas cloud G2 is, is headed for doom. It appears to be just heading straight into this. Straighting, it appears to be heading straight into Sagittarius A. 
Luckily for us, our, well, luckily for the galaxy, its mass is estimated to be only about that of three Earths, so they don't expect any full-blown quasar to come out of this. But uh, this whole thing may explain some recently discovered uh, bubbles of hot gas that that extend above and below the dinner plate structure of our galaxy. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. These bubbles go about 25,000 light years up and down, and they emit gamma rays, x-rays, and microwave radiation. It's thought they may have been inflated by the emission of some combination of young stars or jets of energy from the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Now, if someone knows more about this topic, please drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax. Among other little tidbits in the article is the fact that the largest known star, the Pistol Star, is part of a quintuplet cluster that's orbiting pretty close to Sagittarius A, and that can't be a coincidence. And by the way, congratulations to NASA for finding these so-called Fermi bubbles. They were discovered by the Fermi satellite. This mission is to pick up gamma rays from space. So it could be uh, quite a year for celestial fireworks with comet uh, Ison whipping by the Earth uh, and maybe the G2 gas cloud getting sucked up by the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, may you live in interesting times. Well, from an astronomical sense, we certainly appear to be at the moment. Let's do a health issue or two. It turns out the number of people dying from heart disease in Europe has been halved over the past 30 years. That's according to the European Heart Journal and That's, of course, being chalked up to reductions in smoking. It's noted that heart disease is still Europe's biggest killer, however, and increased rates of diabetes and obesity is raising death rates among the young. Peace in Sacramento will be here earlier this week talking about the race from drug companies, Amgen, Pfizer, and Sanofi, to try and find a way to mimic a uh, mutation that some people have that gives them very low LDL cholesterol, which is the bad kind. This is probably a good thing, but as a doctor, I've always wondered why it is we put so much emphasis on lowering cholesterol and not on going out and getting exercise, which might be a great way to also lower the uh, LDL levels in your blood. Now, it's true that, uh, as Mr. Merlin points out, the pharmaceutical companies cannot charge you if you go out and exercise where they can for the pills they sell you. Although I used to scoff at such explanations of why things are done the way they are in medicine, I don't scoff as much as I used to, that's for sure. We talked about PR, I think, on last week's program, and, well, pharmaceutical companies have a lot of money to spend on PR. And speaking about pharmaceuticals, here's one that just whapped me upside the head about two weeks ago. A study was conducted by, I forget which urology department, uh, operating out of Evanston, Illinois, but... They took a look at billing codes for, in this case, erectile dysfunction and tried to assess what was being done about it. And uh, the results are pretty startling. They found 6.23 million Americans had been given a diagnosis of ED. Now, if 6.2 million Americans had been given a diagnosis of asthma, I would assume that, you know, 95 to 98% of them would probably have been given a medication certainly an inhaler, etc., to deal with that condition. I would likewise expect that erectile dysfunction would be treated with a somewhat lesser priority by physicians, since it's not a thing that'll kill you and generally is sloughed off for that reason, among others. But I was quite astonished to find that according to this study, 75% of American men who are given this diagnosis then receive no treatment. 
They filled no prescriptions to then deal with the problem. What is wrong with this picture? Now, I have some insight into what's wrong with this picture because by way of disclosure, I should note that I operate a clinic that specializes in treating erectile dysfunction. So this is a subject near and dear to me. But I have to note, this is not the fault of the patients. I mean, it may partly be the fault of the patients, but this also has to be largely the fault of my fellow physicians out there. What are you guys and gals thinking? ED is now pretty treatable. The study took a look at what treatments were being given to the 25% of people who got any, and that was pretty interesting. 75% of people who got any treatment at all got the basic phosphodiesterase inhibitors. You're familiar with Viagra, Cialis, Levitra from TV advertising, which is good. They have an effectiveness of probably 60%. So if 25% of people are being treated, 75% of them are getting Viagra, etc., and it's effective for 60% of them, we can do the math and come up with a figure of about 11% of Americans are being taken care of by this method which is something, but at this point, the wheels come off in the stats. The study considered that another form of treatment was to use testosterone. Now, testosterone supplementation has been all over TV and following in the wake of, I think, the, the, the financial success of uh, Cialis, uh, Levitra, Viagra, etc. And, uh, you know, if you do have low T, as the ads say, it might make sense for you to be on some testosterone. The problem is... Most men do not have low T. And if you do have low T, it's probably only likely to affect your sex life in terms of driving down your libido. Testosterone doesn't have that much to do with the actual physiology of sex. Therefore, to consider treating people with testosterone as a treatment for ED is a little bit misguided. It's only going to help perhaps 10% of people with the problem. So if you do the math on that, 25% times 31%, which is the rate at which this so-called therapy was being used, times 10%, you're down to well under 1% of people being helped by that. And even worse, fewer than 2% of people were treated, and this is of the 25%, fewer than 2% of the 25% received a form of prostaglandin, either injections or pellets that are put into the urethra. Now, turns out, That's a pretty effective method, not necessarily the pellets, which is uh, not used very much in truth and and not very effective either, but injections, either of uh, alprostadil, which is a prostaglandin alone, Caverject and some other systems, or more commonly Trimix, which is a mixture of prostaglandin plus a couple of other vasodilators. Well, that works pretty well. It's probably got about an 80% success rate, which is great, except that only 25% of men are being treated at all. And of those, fewer than 2% are using this method. To which I say, my fellow docs, get off the dime on this. I mean, for starters, among those people who have failed uh, to get better using, uh, using pills or certainly using testosterone, a lot of those might benefit from these injections. And of course, of the 75% of men who aren't being treated at all, it probably has a role to play. I mean, obviously, the first thing you want to try is one of the pills. Go to your doctor if you have ED and and talk to him or her about this. I know it's a difficult topic to bring up and I know it's not a priority item because it doesn't kill you, but have that conversation. The logical first thing for you to do is get a prescription and try some of the pills. Take it from there. 
a logical thing that's probably not for you to do is necessarily get some testosterone on board. Now, if you got if you do a blood test and your your level is low, that's different. But a lot of guys out there just taking it, shooting from the hip, and that is bad medicine. And that's about all I have to say about that today. But I don't want to end on an item where I'm scolding. But let's have a bit of comedy relief here at the end, shall we? New Scientist magazine has been crusading about various conferences that take place around the world where people are asked to submit papers. And then, of course, for a fee, they're able to come and present those at the conference. And I guess this is sort of like uh, perhaps appeals to people's vanity or stupidity or we're not sure what. But to quote from the magazine, in a feedback item on scam conference invitations last year, Marine biologist Phil Graham told us he got so tired of receiving these that in response, he started submitting ridiculous paper titles under his dog's name, which in this case was Cleo V. Borzoi. He then wrote new scientists talk about his dog's latest triumph. Apparently, this spring, Phil received an email inviting him, quote, to be a speaker at Forum 4, numeral 4, colon, Ocean Energy at the Third New Energy Forum, which is one of the most crucial parallel meetings of EAFA 2013 during September 26th to 28th, 2013 at Xi'an Guijang International Conference Center, China. Sensing a scam, Phil, in the name of Cleo V. Borzai, replied, Regarding entitled to be speaker at New Energy Forum 2013, I would like to submit the following paper. Borzai, Cleo V. Harnessing angular kinetic energy from colossal cloned rodentia. Re-envisioning the hamster wheel model in green energy management. Please let me know if this is appropriate for the meeting. Thank you. The magazine notes we can imagine his pleasure when an email came back from Lydia Liu, one of the organizers, saying, quote, I am delighted you are interested in our forum. We have received your speech title. Our committee thinks your research is very interesting and novel. I think there are lots of speakers and experts who will be interested in your topic. Said Phil, the image of a giant hamster powering a small city was just too good to pass up. He said, not only for me, but apparently for the conference committee also. Less amusingly, perhaps, the organizers subsequently emailed Dr. Borzoi, asking for payment of $1,299, described as registration fee. Personally, I think this would work if we can just figure out a way to create a hamster the size of Godzilla. And before leaving the topic of rodent wheels, I would ask, have you ever wondered if you put a wild mouse in a cage, if he would find that uh, a wheel was something he'd want to run in? Well, some years back, I chanced to perform this experiment, and the verdict is in. They do. They like it just as much as your white mice that you can buy at the pet store. In fact, they love it. They run very aggressively. So much so that it is my belief that we could probably make a dent in the energy crisis if we can just find a way to create wild mice the size of bison. But of course, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And I think that about does it for today's program. Marking the first time in our history, we've ended the show on the disclaimer. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.